Support for Wabanaki Windows comes from the Abbey Museum, founded in 1928 at Sewer de Mont Spring in Acadia National Park and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. The time is 9.59 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Webinaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webinaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, our guests are Dr. Darren Ranko, University of Maine, Orono, Jamie Bissonette, Chair of the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission, Dr. Alex Wilson, uh, Native, uh, she's with the University of Saskatchewan, and Dr. Rebecca Sockbeeson at the University of Alberta. Um, What we'll be talking about today uh, is the holidays. And it's the holidays in October and November that uh, I think Native people are feeling sort of uh, assaulted with. Uh, And uh, and I'm talking about the, the holidays like, you know, Columbus Day and Halloween in October. Um, the uh, the holidays of Thanksgiving and uh, Veterans Day falls in there, and, and the uh, Native American uh, Heritage Month as well. But before we begin our conversation, I want to uh, talk a little bit about uh, our guests. And uh, first, uh, I want to go to uh, Dr. Wilson, Alex Wilson. Alex, are you there? Yeah. Hi there. Hi. Um, I'm going to uh, say something about your who you are, and, and let me know if I mispronounce your any of the words here. <laughs> uh, Dr. Alex Wilson is from the what's that? Pasquiat Cree Nation. Pasquiat Cree Nation, and is currently an associate professor in the Department of uh, Educational Foundations and the academic director of the Aboriginal Education Research Center at the University of Saskatchewan. She completed her B.A. in psychology from California State University, Sacramento, in 1994. Uh, She has a uh, EDM in human development and psychology, uh, cultural development from Harvard University, uh, and uh, human development in, uh, okay, Harvard University, 2007. Her research and teaching focuses on indigenous education, land-based education, and indigenous research methodologies. She has a passion for social justice, and much of her academic community work uh, is from this perspective. Our other guest, one of our other guests, is uh, Dr. Darren Ranko, who is a member of the Penobscot Indian Nation, uh, an associate professor of uh, anthropology and chair of Native American programs at the University of Maine. He has a master's, uh, master of studies in environmental law from Vermont Law School, PhD in social anthropology from Harvard University. Dr. Ranko's research focuses on the ways in which indigenous communities in the United States, particularly Maine, 
resist environmental destruction by using indigenous diplomacies and critiques of liberalism to protect cultural resources. He teaches classes on indigenous intellectual properties, uh, property rights, uh, research ethics, environmental justice, and tribal governance. Um, our other guest is... Uh, I'm running, I'm running out of... Uh, <laughs> Uh, our other guest is uh, is uh, Jamie Bissonette, and uh, she's the chair of uh, the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission, and we're going to let her talk about that just for a couple minutes to explain what that is. And then our final guest is uh, Dr. Rebecca Sockbason. Rebecca, you there? Yeah, I sure am. Okay. <laughs> and uh, we've had Rebecca on our show previously uh, from the uh, University of Alberta in uh I don't have your bio in front of me, Rebecca. <laughs> do you have it in front of you? <laughs> I do. I have it right at the top of my head. Okay, tell us who you are. Okay, I'm from Indian Island, Maine, and um, I got my master's degree from Harvard University, and I got my Ph.D. Um, with Dr. Darren Ranko's supervision and Dr. Alex Wilson's mentoring and Jamie and Auntie Donna's and love and mentoring um, in January of 2010, and I'm now an assistant professor at the University of Alberta in Indigenous Peoples Education Specialization. Okay, so we'll take the next uh, couple minutes to listen to uh, Jamie, uh, and Jamie, you can tell us a little bit about the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission. Well, Donna, the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission uh, was formed uh, under the Federal Maine Indian Claims Settlement Act. And it, um, when the drafters signed that act into law, in, in the preamble to the act, they actually recognized that, uh, that, uh, that the act and the Maine Implementing Act are going to have to be uh, amended, uh, that they did not know how this was going to work. And so they created a body comprised of equal numbers of uh, commissioners appointed by the tribal uh, chiefs and appointed by the governor of the state of Maine to act as a dispute resolution and a um, study uh, center and make recommendations to the state legislature and the federal government around um, the amendment of the Implementing Act. And uh, that was over 30 years ago. And despite numerous reports and numerous attempts on the part of the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission and the uh, tribal representatives, there has been no substantial amendment to the Implementing Act. So uh, MITSIC, the Maine Indian Tribal State Commission, last year went before the United Nations and we filed a complaint, uh, a human rights complaint, that the structure of the settlement agreements have actually created conditions for the tribes of Maine that have risen to the level of human rights violations. And the uh, UN Special Rapporteur on the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People agreed with our findings and cited the human rights violation of Wabanaki people in the um, UN report that he filed last fall. And he has indicated that he is deciding whether he will open an all-out investigation 
into the human rights violations against the Wabanaki in Maine. That's that's uh, great. Um, I'm glad that the uh, that the UN is seeing fit to look into this further. Um, but you're also doing a few other things. <laughs> uh, if you could just touch upon those uh, in, a, in the next couple of minutes. Well, uh, last spring we uh, achieved a goal that we had set for ourselves about, uh, I, I believe, 10, 10, 12 years ago uh, in ending the use of the mascot and name Redskins in the state of Maine. There are no more high schools in the state of Maine that do that use the uh, mascot Redskins. There are some still that use Braves and Warriors, but um, but n no longer is Redskins used. So we have, uh, you know, we've uh, accomplished that. Um, additionally, we've been supporting the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and lately very, very involved in land and natural resource issues, of which there are, are many on the horizon uh, involving both, both the Penobscot River and the St. Croix watershed. Okay, so we're going to move on to the to the holidays. And uh, Jamie, thanks for that that update on uh, Mitzik. Um, and it just seems to me, and I you know I just put this program together last Thursday or so in my head. I'm thinking, you know, you look at October and you and there's a holiday, it's Columbus Day holiday, and then um, and then there's Halloween. I think there's some sort of synergy there, you know. Uh, and then you go into November, and uh, and then you uh, then you have the uh, the Thanksgiving holiday and and stuff on you know some things on veterans, but then there's the the Native American uh, Heritage Month. So there's a there's sort of like a. I'm thinking uh, in those two months there's there's lots of. Uh, symbolism in those holidays are about native people and and uh i don't feel all that uh appreciated as a native person after all these holidays and <laughs> i feel kind of beat up a little bit <laughs> um but uh i was just uh looking on uh, your facebook alex and uh there was a little posting on there of uh of uh a pilgrim and an Indian. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You want to, you want to tell us about that one? Sure. That was a um, uh, something that um, well, it's gaining more attention finally. Because I think because of the availability of internet and Facebook and other social media platforms, but um, it it's been going on for quite a while, and that is this romanticization and also appropriation of culture. Uh, native culture and stereotyping Aboriginal people, and so the the poster that was on there is something that a group called the 1491s posted uh, um, because they brought to wanted to bring to people's attention um, these racist stereotypes. And basically, that poster was um, similar to posters that appear at other places that are appearing at other places around um, Thanksgiving and. The theme on that poster was um, party like a pilgrim, drink like an Indian. And there's a little caricatures of a pilgrim and then 
stereotypical Indian with feathers and a you know, buckskin outfit drunk at this bar. And so that kind of um, propelled people to phone and, uh, you know, to try and get the, the organization or the, or the bar to to stop doing that. But, you know, there's hundreds of other examples of how that has happened in the States and how it is happening right now, not just in the U.S., but in Canada as well. What do you think the purpose of that is? <laughs> well, first... <laughs> Uh, that's a good question because, um, from my perspective, the purpose is just to entrench further racism and um, also to show people's ignorance. But I guess ultimately, in any kind of business, their perceived purpose is to make money and to um, to advertise in a way that you know may be ignorant, but also um, maybe trying to provoke people. I'm not sure because. In this day and age, it, it would have to be willful, willful ignorance if you know, uh, anybody in the U.S. or Canada did not understand that historical colonial legacy and, and racism that Aboriginal and Native American people face. Do you have any comment on that, Rebecca? Well, you know what? It just, I just got this memory as Alex is, Dr. Wilson is talking. Um, I remember back in, in, oh, it was 1998, as recent as 1998, or maybe, no, no, it would have been earlier, ni around 95, I guess, because I was still an undergrad at UMaine, Phi Eta Kappa, which is one of those big fraternity houses on College Ave, um, held an Indian party, and it was a big keg party where the, the fraternity brothers would dress up like Indians and go out in these school buses and hunt for their squaw dates. And they would be these girls that were dressed up like, you know, quote, Indian princesses or squaws, and then they'd bring them back to the fraternity house. And um, and there was they had a setup in the basement of their fraternity house where they had teepees set up where people would go in and, you know, they had drinking games around being Indians and, and uh, and and these teepees were set up so that the the fraternity brothers would take their squad dates into these teepees during the party. Anyhow, we got we found out about it as undergrads at the time, and um, <clears throat> met with the dean of student services, and we were also irate back then. So uh, we organized a bunch of students, and we had a drum in front of the fraternity house and we held hands in front of the fraternity house and um and the fraternity we i don't even think we ever got an apology from the fraternity and certainly the university there was no suspension or anything of that nature but the university did create um with our help uh, the university created um a an anti-harassment policy um and much of that leadership was with um, Kathy McGinnis and Esther Attian too. Anyhow, that's that sort of brings very local um, what what Dr. Wilson is talking about. And this party, this Indian party that this fraternity had at UMaine, and they continue to have it, from what I understand. I don't think it ever stopped because you know how some of these, a lot of these fraternities, they have traditions that just don't stop. I think they just got better at covering it up. But um, 
you know, it's very dehumanizing. So not only does it generate money, but it perpetuates the dehumanizing of our people, which, you know, is obvious, obviously sells, right? Mm. Sounds like dehumanizing of the uh, women as well. Mm-hmm. That. Well, yeah, of course. Um, I've asked Darren to uh, do a little discussion on the uh, the background of historical background of Thanksgiving. So, Darren, I'm going to let you go with that. For Okay. All right. So, as the token man today, I'll <laughs> <laughs> opinion. I, I, I just, it's, it's hard not to um, think about stereotypes, um, something like a party or an advertisement. These all seem sort of, in a way, trivial on the one hand. Um, and yet there's just this direct line between these, this imagery and a celebration of violence against indigenous people um, in North America. So I think as, as, um, as Native people, we, we tend to approach these things a little bit with humor on the one hand as a way of healing ourselves, but there's also just this very... Um, and they exist all over the place, just these um, fairly strident celebrations of violence against us that underpin all of these little pieces. And so Thanksgiving is an obvious one. Um, and, and when I describe it with people in middle school or my relatives uh, around Thanksgiving or any of these things, you can point to this idea that the you know the, the quote-unquote first thanksgiving and uh, i encourage people to look up the myths that surround uh american thanksgiving uh on the internet and you can see a whole bunch of them and and it's not hard to find uh, the documented histories of this but and uh, in, in connecting these pieces you know we see this idea of the first thanksgiving or this connection or mutual celebration in 1621 uh, with the Wampanoags and the recently al- arrived uh, English um, colonists in, in in the Massachusetts area, that uh, in the oral histories for the Wampanoags show that they were treating these recently arrived um, people with suspicion. They had every right uh, to to recognize that there had been already numerous encounters. So when they heard, you know, gunshots, this is uh, the way one of the stories go. Um, in this uh, feast context, they uh, showed up with 90 men, no women, no children, thinking that there was a war, there was an attack about to occur. And they saw that these, um, the the colonists, um, who we now refer to as pilgrims, I guess, uh, were uh, preparing for a feast, a harvest holiday, which is, uh, no one here is going to argue against a Thanksgiving, a harvest holiday, something exists in pretty much every culture and is really critically important to many indigenous people uh, around the world. So obviously our beef is, beef is not with giving thanks. It's something who, about who we are that is about it. But then the Wampanoags did see in this quote-unquote first Thanksgiving the, um, the preparations for uh, a harvest holiday, and they showed up with the food, really, and, and fed um, by and large, fed the um, recently arrived English uh, colonists, and, and I think that the example of that uh, as a sort of diplomacy um, lesson, I think, is a great one in terms of um, 
an impending threat, obviously, to the indigenous people, and that um, the Wampanoags treated this with caution at first, and then with a, both a cultural and kind of political engagement, um, as they did bring the feast, brought women and children, did share meal. I think I think that is a, a cultural thing for the Wampanoags that is continues to today. I, you know, if you visit them, they they still do this. Um, the unfortunate twist around this is that ha- that happened once. Um, by 1637, we have basically an outright colonial war where the English and a few Indians um, that they had allied with um, massacre 700 Pequots. Uh, and I bring this up not because it's unrelated, but this is really the first um, sustained piece of a Thanksgiving celebrating from an English uh, colonial perspective, a Thanksgiving, uh, and several way, several days after this massacre, um, the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony declared a day of thanks for, and they are thanking God for helping them massacre 700 um, Indians. And so I think the twistery around this, and this is renewed as a day of thanks, as a Thanksgiving day, pretty much every year for the next 100 years or so. Um, so to talk to Indians about Thanksgiving and the way it's become a kind of holiday in the American context requires us to reveal and visit this site of this massacre. And the cel- so the massacre is bad enough, of course, then the celebrations of the massacre um, is sort of part of the assault, I think Donna was talking about. So when you have imagery and the investments around the imagery I, I see a really direct line between that imagery and the celebration of violence against indigenous people. So I think it's really hard for us to unravel that in terms of our experience. Yeah, Jamie, you look like you wanted to say something. Uh, I, I just wanted to say say kind of two things. One is I, that Pequot massacre, uh, from my reading, it... Uh, a part of that took place at night with people being burned in their homes, women and children, uh, fathers, mothers, grandparents uh, being burned to death in their homes. And so uh, it, uh, this thing that they're giving thanks to their God for is the um, you know, ruthless, ruthless slaughter of of uh, sleeping people, sleeping human beings, and then um, you know I had to uh, really you I think um, Darren when you said uh, that this these holidays are a celebration of the violence against Native people that that hit core uh, that's uh, such a good description I don't think I'd heard anybody ever say that before. That was really clear, and I thank you for that. The other thing that I find, you know, bringing it up to today, uh, a lot of the things that we struggle with as Aboriginal people have to do with this intergenerational historic trauma and the fact that, you know, perhaps this these massacres took place hundreds of years ago, but they're written into our DNA, and we see the results of it in our communities today, um, struggling with the very real reality of this 
this legacy that we can't turn away from. And so when you see this celebration of violence against Aboriginal people, it's, um, it's re-stimulating in a really um, harsh way, and it's re-stimulating in ways that can, can really harm our people uh, and touches on and raises up all that unresolved grief that's uh, so much of, of what we confront. Um, uh, Rebecca or uh, Alex, do you have any comments on that? Well, I think um, in Canada as well, the same kind of things have happened, and um, that kind of uh, celebrating violence um, makes... Alex, can you speak up? We can't hear you. Yeah, sure. Um, apparently the live streaming's not working either. So. Can you speak up louder? <laughs> <laughs> um, Scream. Kind of things have happened, um, but our history may may be a little bit shorter than the amount of time that it's happened in the U.S. But I think we're definitely kind of seeing the same kind of outcomes today. And um, you know, a lot of people may have heard about the missing or murdered Aboriginal women in Canada, mm-hmm. yeah. and that's uh, pretty much an epidemic. There's you know over a thousand women that are unaccounted for Aboriginal women today. And seven out of ten Aboriginal girls will experience some kind of violence. Um, and so, you know, the, the gendered nature of violence and also how it's um, linked to Aboriginal people is really quite shocking. And I think that has persisted. And celebrations or celebrating violence in the form of Columbus Day, um, you know, it, it doesn't just impact the U.S. because people, people in Canada well talk about Columbus Day and also acknowledge him as a, as a worthy explorer. Hmm. Rebecca, any comment? Yeah, I just, um, I, I also think it's, I, I really, I really like how Darren has laid out um, that story because it's uh, what I also understand about um, what Darren's talking about is at the time in 16, what preempted um, that massacre as well and that that engagement was um, there's some documentation that tells us that the Puritans were starving to death and that they had just survived their first you know winter um, in the Wampanoag territory and it was the Wampanoag that saved um, the Puritans from starvation. So we literally have, you know, which is in, which is indicative of um, of indigenous values at the time and continues to be, which is that generosity, right? And so um, I think it's noteworthy to, you know, identify and recognize that our people saved another people from starvation in the in the in the most uh, sort of rigid um, of conditions and weather conditions, um, and so then subsequent to that was this massacre and um i also understand that first thanksgiving to have been um you know like a feast time and which is also you know i think that i don't know if it's just the um if it's too much optimism in my own self but i try to think well where how can we you know even our own people it's like is ignorance bliss like we really do like my family we've always celebrated thanksgiving um, because it's a time when everyone has, you know, work off, and 
um, and we really enjoy getting together and having a feast, you know, and being thankful, right? It's like Darren said, every culture in the world gives thanks to the bounty of the earth for its harvest. Um, and so that, um, you know, at the same time, it's, you know, probably in my family, one of the most heavily celebrated times to get together when I was growing up was Thanksgiving. And, you know, the cooking and the feasting was just, it, and continues to be, you know, um, quite extensive. So um, although I like to identify and recognize because um, this harvest ceremony, and but it's also interesting and noteworthy and, and important to understand how much of a, a hallmark experience has turned into because the harvest ceremonies are not necessarily, and ancestrally, we're not at the end of November either, right? So timing-wise, I think that there is a, um, you know, it's not necessarily reflective of when Indigenous peoples celebrate and have harvest ceremony um, is at the end of November. So it most certainly is a, a holiday that's targeted um, to non-Native people and celebrates, you know, that that violence. Um, and, you know, at the same time, it's, it's, I would be amiss, you know, to say, well, this is a time, you know, that my family mourns. It's actually a time when my family tries to get together. This is when, pe- you know, a lot of mainstream, a lot of people have, you know, time off from work and we're able to gather and we have those, you know, those days off. So I'm answering my own question. I don't necessarily think ignorance is bliss um, because certainly my family is familiar with the, the truth around Thanksgiving. Um, but at the same time, I think it's it's also important for our own people to recognize and understand that um, to not be ashamed of celebrating with their family <laughs> tomorrow or the day after, um, but to also pray for our ancestors uh, because we weren't supposed to be here. And Thanksgiving is a mark that recognizes, and it's like Mary Bassett is always reminding us that genocidal bounty and what Darren's time was. The first, you think of it this way, the first Thanksgiving, 1621, and then um, the prohibition of guns, on our ancestors, uh, English had prohibited our people from selling guns to our people. One hundred, I think, in 1655, in the 1650s. So guns were prohibited to be sold to our ancestors. And then 100 years later is that genocidal bounty on Penobscot scalps, which was in 1755. So um, you know, these are all important, you know, times for us to to talk on the issue for sure. Um, those are just my, my thoughts. Yeah, I, I think just um, uh, the investments, you know, so uh, I agree. My my dad um, um, also saw this as our Indigenous holiday, that Thanksgiving was, it was our food. It was connected to family. It was seemed to be less commercialized than other holidays. I feel like for many Indigenous people, for na- many Native people, that this is an important time. And I think it, it, um, recognizing who we are through it is important. I think in a, in a sort of broader scale, there's uh, um, the investments are also about forgetting. So, mm-hmm. you know, by the time... Um, you know, President Lincoln is, you know, is is responsible for sort of the modern American holiday Thanksgiving, and he um, proclaimed a day of Thanksgiving in 1863 in the middle of the Civil War. 
obviously that's a political move, a way of trying to unite the country that was divided. Um, and he, uh, as he does in so many of his um, sort of speeches or proclamations around these things, he hearkened back to an earlier part of the Republic in terms of thinking about unity. And um, he was reiterating something that um, President Washington had, had done in his, uh, I believe, his, his first administration of a day of Thanksgiving, a day of thanks, and saying he was sort of um, reimagining that. Neither one of these holidays, neither Washington or Lincoln, mentioned Indians at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they yeah. are, mm-hmm. so I mean, the investments are as much about forgetting and then to, which would be fine and not, okay, so forgetting that allows people in the colonial <laughs> imaginary to move on. It allows them to move on. Of course, we, we can't ever. But then the elements of how the imagery uh, uh, surrounds something like Thanksgiving is the mo- reminder of the dehumanizing pieces, right? So much like you have, um, you know, the 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 poster that Alex is referring to or any of the stereotypes, you know, we've seen this litany from Gwen Stefani mm-hmm. to Urban Outfitters to whomever. Uh, and I, I suppose they always think of it as um, a freedom of speech issue or something. But for us, the reminders of dehumanizing who we are is therefore puts us back into 1637, right? A remind, to, those massacres are only possible um, from people who proclaim themselves as missions, uh, as uh, people who pr- proclaim themselves as sort of missionaries and Christian people, they can only legitimize that through dehumanizing a, a race of people. So it's um, the investments of the imagery around Thanksgiving is what is the constant reminder to us, right? That you're just a little squaw, quote unquote, or you're just in the feathers mm-hmm. or... Um, you're, there's this investment in both of those, right? Both the imagery and the forgetting is the colonial kind of impetus uh, that controls who we are. So I, it's it's hard to disentangle that in a simple way on the radio. I need at least a semester <laughs> for, for people yeah. to kind of get with why you can have both a reminder and a forgetting that creates for us this um, psychic overload of dehumanizing rememory of a massacre, right? So you have to recognize both the forgetting and the uh, investments in the imagery around these things. I do, you know, that reminds me, I do want to mention a book that I'm looking at, Rethinking Columbus, that book, and in it, there's uh they talk about another book uh and how it sort of glorifies uh thanksgiving and th- there's a there's a little cartoon and it has uh, indians uh jumping up and down and uh and it's quoted it's it says uh and when it was all over the indians gave three cheers for the pilgrims never before had they eaten such wonderful food According to this popular children's book, The Pilgrim's Party, A Really True Story by Sadabeth and Anson Lowitz. So the food that was, uh, they, they were talking about there was squash and corn and, and, you know, turkey and deer and 
So the Indians had never before seen such a feast. That's, that's <laughs> it's ludicrous. And a lot of those vegetables didn't even exist in Europe at that time. Right. Yeah. Alex, you there? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Do you have any comment? Well, I just, it's just the irony in that. It's pretty funny. But, you know, I think um, it shows how if that, that's a book for children, right? And yeah. This whole... It's not just in pop culture, the media, mm-hmm. it's also in the education system. And I think that's one of the things that I'm most concerned about. And I, I find that most troubling because it's, you know, those kinds of books still exist. That, um, and you know, what are we teaching our children? What are we teaching our children about history? And, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is happening in Canada. It's happening in the U.S., it's happening in Australia, but you know, before there can be any kind of reconciliation, we have to have truth, and that's what's missing. And you know, when Darren talks about that knowing, not knowing, what's going on at the same time, there's been a huge investment in that within our education system. So I think now is a time where we can expose that untruth and start to tell our own stories about. Uh, who we are as Indigenous people, going right back to the beginning of how we came to be here, our origin stories. So I don't know how many schools in Canada and the U.S. are still teaching the Bering Strait myth that we mm-hmm. wandered across, the Bering Strait at some time, but all of our nations, you know, from the Arctic Circle all the way to the equator, have stories of origin that, that link us right back to this land and even within our, our languages, markers that, you know, say that we've come here and we show our existence for not just 3,000, 5,000, 10, but, you know, hundreds, 100,000 years in some cases. So um, so that has to be told, and uh, I think that's important. Um, the, the issue of mascots, and I really applaud Maine for passing that legislation, and I think that other states and provinces can learn from what you've done there and your activism because here here I am sitting in Saskatoon and we have a popula- very high population of Aboriginal people in the city and yet we still have a school that's got a Redskins um, Redmen mascot and you know we've been trying to change that with a lot of resistance from from the school from and from the school board itself so uh, again, I think education is key, and I think we're all, all of us on the show are invested in, in, um, in, in changing things through the education system. Yeah, Alex, the uh, Maine has not passed uh, a, a, an act or a law about the mascot issue. Uh, that was all done through uh, Maine Indian Tribal State Commission, and uh, Jamie, could you address that for just a minute? Yes, uh we we went to these schools we when i came on as chair i i set a calendar and i i didn't do more than one school at a time because it's emotionally exhausting to to do this in-depth anti-racism work um one of the uh, you mentioned dr wilson about um ironies and one of the ironies in having these conversations and most of the schools uh, were in the southern part of the state 
which is where the red men societies actually emerged and these were societies uh, like um like the elks or something like that fraternal orders where uh, white men would go and you know dress up like indians and dance and it was a secret kind of a society and at one point in one of the conversations, one of the older men in his 80s said, maybe we should let go of redskins and reclaim our history and call ourselves the red men. And I realized how much work we had to do. But one of the, um, well, I knew that anyway, but one of the ironies was that the Aboriginal people who came down, the Wabanaki people who came down to speak with these school boards were constantly referred to as the people from away, you know, um, instead of the first people. And so it took a lot of dedication and commitment to education uh, and to healing to walk these schools um, on to this different path. And we found that it took about, it, it did take a full calendar year to uh, get to the point where the boards of education or school committees uh, understood that they couldn't, there was just no way they could continue. And I won't say that all hearts and minds were changed because we know they weren't, but the decisions with a deeper understanding of why those decisions had to be made were made. Um, but with the place name, offensive place names, um, there was a a piece of legislation yes. that was passed. And and on top of that, there had to be a lot of this education in the communities to get those those names changed. I'm just reminded, too, that um, the investments in settler colonial societies, it, it's in, uh, Jamie has done this work on the front lines, actually, I think. Um, so have Rebecca and Alex, more so than, than I, but that these are investments by people that are emotional they're deep mm -hmm. in emotional investments in the indian as this imagery that are about who they are you know that that, that the investments um cut to the core of s someone placing themselves in this country on their land like that is the story that comforts them into that so that this work is painstaking and emotional for us as uh, we're all native educators, you know, I think is also just, it's, it, it can be jarring and, mm -hmm. and um, emotional in, in responding to that. Uh, and, and one hopes that in, uh, you know, much like the evidence that's been produced in the last um, 10 to 12 years that really the the deep harm that these stereotypes of who we are um the harm that's caused to our children and in particular native children um how how can stereotypes can harm that um it doesn't become um only an art you know only a discussion about who feels worse or harder about something that we draw out uh, these very truthful stories and histories and point to very um, uh, specific harms. And mm -hmm. I think that ten generally, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is eventually what can yeah. create um, 
mutual understanding and an education around such things, Jamie. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I imagine, I wasn't in these rooms with you, so. No, you're, you're right, but it, they, you, the thing is, um, the education happens uh, through, over a long time, uh, willingness to engage in some pretty hard conversations and stay in a good space while some pretty awful things are said. But the point that you're making, which I think goes right back to uh, Thanksgiving and having, you know, dressing up like Indians for Halloween and, uh, you know, uh, the Columbus myth is the impact that that has on Native children. And uh, and it's not just unconscious; it's a conscious impact. Because I, you know, I've I've heard from a number of young Native uh, men who are on sporting teams, and they're playing against a team called Redskins, and they hear the cheers, you know, coming up from, you know, the the you know, kill the Redskins, and here they are. And it, there's, it happens inside their bodies. And our children have so much that they have to deal with. And to constantly be confronted with these images um, ha- has a really overwhelming effect on them. And that's why as an, as an educator and as an adult, I feel like it's very important, very, very important to address these things so that our our children can think well of our themselves and you know claim what's rightfully theirs in terms of that uh, culture and tradition and pride and go forward so there's there is a sort of like a violent mm-hmm. theme throughout all of this Darren mm-hmm. did you have something you you look like you had something but oh no it was <laughs> simply i um, mean just it, it just this um i i think as a an instructor when i teach these issues i um i think it's easy for me to uh sort of say well the other side is wrong you know they're just they don't know they don't if you know maybe if they knew the actual story if i could you know make my argument about the hundred Thanksgivings of celebrating violence and, and massacre against us, that they would somehow shift and, and um, recognize, oh, well, right, of course, you know, well, you're, you're right, and I just didn't know that. So, um, of course, we'll get rid of all the imagery from our school curriculum or from our blah, 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 but their investments don't operate, um, that settler nation states um and uh, and sort of th- those investments don't operate on the on the level of a kind of logic or a, n- a knowing of a history that they have um, emotional investments that they're not aware of uh, in into violence that it, that that is the you know est- <laughs> thing that keeps the 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 sort of uh, settler nation state moving um that part and and investments in the patriarchy and 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 so on and so forth that that you know not to get all crazy on everyone but i mean that's the that is kind of the glue in their emotional investment that they're not aware of and i i guess i'm just when i think of the work that say mitzik has done around this or anyone who's gone into schools to really affect 
change in these uh, curricula that um, what we're what we're dealing with isn't simply uh, a lack of um, mm-hmm. appropriate historical information, but an actual investment, mm-hmm. unconscious often, in mm-hmm. these stories of violence uh, against indigenous people. You know, I used to think that's a good point because you know I used to think, well, gee, you know, if we could get our as you said, our, our view and our thoughts across, people would, you know, understand. They'd get it. But that's, unfortunately, that is not the case. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, this reminds me, um, probably in the mid-90s when I was working at USM, I got a phone call from um, a woman who had asked me if, if, I, was, um, if I was Native, if I was a Native American. She had heard that I was Native American, and I was running this program at the university. And I, I confirmed. I said, yes, I'm, I'm a Native person. And she had said, well, you know, I've just been calling all around, and my, um, my son's birthday party is coming up in a month. And I have been calling around because I'm trying to find an Indian that I can hire to come into the birthday to entertain the kids. And um, and I'm, I'm, like, thinking to myself, is this a prank? Like, is someone pu- pulling a joke on me, like, to get a rise out of me or something? And uh, and I said, like, a, and so I said to her, I said, so you're looking to hire someone, like, similar, like a clown? She goes, yeah, but I don't want a clown. I want an Indian. Do you know where I can hire someone <laughs> to come to my birthday party? So it's, like, it just sounds, you know, it... it this is this is rooted in this discussion that that we're having right now because there's just um, there's such a vast you know Darren's using this language investment I think it's such a good way to um, frame this discussion because there's a vast and a very deep systematic um, in everyday life investment and the dehumanization of Native people and to such an extent that someone would actually think that you could call and hire, you know, an Indian to, to entertain your kids at a child's birthday party, like, you know, analogous to a clown. So I think that it's, um, you know, it's, it's something that warrants a whole lot more discussion. And I think that even in, in simpler ways, I'm always trying to think, you know, similar to Darren um, and Alex and, you know, to us all, it's like, how, how can we continue to be explaining this in ways um, that make sense to people um, in everyday, in an everyday um, way of being, because it's, it's to us, it, it, for me, it's so outrageous that someone would even, you know, call and say that, or that you give information and people just aren't going to do good things with it, right? Um, and it speaks to the nature of how information is, is, um, is also relayed um, in Western systems. You know, it's like, and it's like uh, that unidirection of how even information is is projected at people. You know, is also counter to probably in indigenous knowledge systems and how, uh, how ancestrally how are people engaged. You know, so it's like just giving people information. They're, you know, it's pedagogically it's not effective. Yeah, you know, it's the experience has to be involved. Absolutely, um, and you know what. Um, a few years ago, when, uh, when uh, New Orleans 
when they had that big storm, Katrina, uh, they had TV coverage of what was going on down there. And, uh, and you know, we had all of this importing, you know, of, of uh, monies and people wanted to help and whatever. And, uh, you know, and I, the thought crossed my mind, what if there were video cameras and, you know, it was, it's like we were there uh, during... Um, Something like uh, Wounded Knee, I mean, the, when it first happened, uh, or Sand Creek. Or, but you know what? After a few years after seeing that, I realized it wouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't matter because people's thinking process has already been formed. And it's sort of like, and I'll probably get all kinds of comments on this one, but it's playing out again right now in the Middle East. You know, I mean, we're seeing people being killed and, uh, and we're, you know, it's not changing anybody's minds. It's not, we're not rushing to, to help or to intervene or, so, I mean, I think what's left is basically education. I mean, that's from the, from the grade schools up. Any comments? (laughs) No, and I think, um, and everyone involved in the uh, discussion today, I think we all believe um, at its core the kind of healing and transformative Mm -hmm. possibilities involved in education. But education is more than, um, you know, again, a listing of the facts of Mm -hmm. something. um, And it is about these relationships uh, that people build through community and through this form of engagement. So I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to preempt. I, I feel like that's how mm-hmm. Mitzik now is operating um, or trying to operate with things like the mascot issue. And I know that both Alex and Rebecca, uh, as specialists in education, right, they make huge investments in their time and work around a transformative possibility uh, through education. I think also uh, there's a couple things that are so complicated. Uh, you know, um, one is acknowledging intent and outcome, because I do think that a lot of times, uh, you know, what we would hear when we would would be, this wasn't what we intended to do. Uh, well, I believe you. You know, maybe maybe I don't understand how you could not think you would cause harm. But I, I'm going to choose to believe that your intent isn't to cause harm. And I think that's important because that creates the openness for the following conversations. But the outcomes are real. You know, we're not making up the outcomes. The uh, footprints are right there. And not only are the footprints there, but there are, there are people standing on that ground. And uh, so you, we don't deal with our intention. We deal with the outcome and the outcome that we want to create. And so moving people into that, that conversation um, is, is crucial. And mm-hmm. I think that coming at it from perspective of relationship building, moving towards healing and transformation, it takes discipline, but um, but we, you know, we can make some substantial changes that way. 
Okay. Uh, we only got a few minutes left here. So what I want to do is I'm going to give everyone a chance to just say their, their you know, what they want to say uh, before we go off the air. So uh, we'll start with, uh, with Rebecca. Make it just a couple of minutes or a little less. Oh, okay. Um, Wake up. All right. <laughs> no, I'm here. I, I agree, Jamie. I think that the it's important to remember that cliche, the road to hell was paved with good intentions. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not about intentions. It's about the impact. Um, so I'm thinking in practical ways about how I talk to my kids about the Thanksgiving. And, um, and before, you know, I create, I, I make a feast. And in prayer, in prayerful ways, um, we and they understand that um, their late grandmas and grandpas suffered greatly in order for us to be here today. And that um, we, you know, we create a feast plate um, for those ancestors um, that have passed on. And, And my children are aware of the need um, to be thankful and honor um, the people that suffered so greatly um, in order for us to be here today. So I think that I would just offer that to other you know, families, that, um, uh, particularly Native families that are getting ready to celebrate their Thanksgiving, and to remind our children that our people, our ancestors, um, saved another people from starving to death and that that is a value, an ancestral value that we carry today is that generosity and that it was, you know, part and, and part of that generosity was also very much taken um, advantage of um, because it led to a subsequent and subsequent massacres, which is the largest act of genocide perhaps the world has ever known. So anyhow, those are just my, those are just some of my last thoughts that I have. As I get ready to think about, I have to go out to the grocery store and get a turkey and celebrate a U.S. Thanksgiving mm-hmm. and make a feast for my kids. So. Well, <laughs> okay, Rebecca, you took up everyone's time. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, no, but those were those were very uh, very good points, and uh, I I do have to acknowledge that Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. Mm-hmm. I love to cook. I love to have people there to eat. Um, it is in celebration of the fact that we're all here. We're all we're all still here, um, and it's a celebration uh, for the ancestors, um, and uh, our well-being. And, and Native people have always celebrated, not just once a year. I mean, they've had Thanksgivings throughout the year. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna let uh, Darren. Well, Alex, do you have anything very quickly? Um, yeah, I just want to say that you know our spirit endures we've been around for a long time we're not going anywhere but um i think for for, um both sides we need to move beyond shame and blame uh, to a place of mutual productivity and part of that is being accountable to our relations Okay, I have to wrap it up. I'm sorry. (laughs) You're listening to WERU Abenaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Uh, the uh, the show today we have guests on the show uh, of uh, uh, Dr. Darren Ranko, Dr. Uh, Alex Wilson, Dr. Rebecca Sockbason, uh, Jamie Bissonnette, and uh, the uh, the music for our show was a track from Rolf Richter called Little Eagles. And thank you for joining us. And I look forward to uh, talking to you again next month. Thank you.
listeners, we need you to join our dialogue on health in Maine. 